Good morning. It's uh, good to see you all this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. We're going to be doing that as part of our series that we've been doing now for a few weeks on the book of Galatians. For those of you that haven't been here or have missed some weeks, um, Neil's been covering different topics through that book. It's been a brilliant series. We're at chapter 3 so far. And the book of Galatians, it was Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And it's kind of a letter sort of written out of frustration, really. The chapter we're looking at today, Paul actually starts chapter 3 with the term, you foolish Galatians, which kind of sets the tone, really, for where, where he's going and what he's saying. We don't need to go there. That You're okay, thank you. Um, and so, so the, 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 it was kind of a letter out of frustration. For those of you, if you're trying to get a grasp of it, one Bible commentator describes what was going on in Galatians a bit like this. He said, imagine that you had planned a new community center in a really deprived area. You're going to set up this community center and it's going to be available for everybody. It's going to provide food for the people that are hungry. It's going to provide beds for people that are homeless. It's going to provide a walk-in health clinic for people that need medical assistance. And so you get the funding and you get the plans drawn up and you oversee the foundations of this community centre that's going to be for everybody set up. And the foundations are in place. And then you have to go away on holiday. And you come back and the builder tells you, building's going well. I've just tweaked a few things, okay? Um, rather than just um, a sort of food bank, we've actually opened a high-class restaurant, an expensive restaurant. And instead of a walk-in medical clinic for everybody, we've actually got a private health clinic with some of the top surgeons, most expensive surgeons... And instead of providing beds for homeless people, we've actually turned it into a really nice hotel. You'd be frustrated, wouldn't you, that actually what you set out this building to be is kind of missed the point of what it was. Somehow the foundations are right, but it's now not helping the people it should be helping. And that's sort of what, what was happening uh, in the Galatian church. They'd started by following the gospel of Jesus Christ. The foundations were all in place. They were understanding the message of the gospel that they're justified and brought into a relationship with Jesus through faith. But somewhere along the line, they got sidetracked. Some Jewish Christians had come along and said, but what about the law? What about what you eat? And what about um, circumcision and all the things that we used to follow in the law? This gospel is not just about that. You also need to be doing this. And so Paul is frustrated and the whole of Galatians is about him explaining to him the gospel message that our faith and trust in Jesus Christ is actually all that we need to be brought into right relationship with God. And so far in the series, Neil's looked at uh, Galatians telling us, are you good enough? The fact that you are good enough in Jesus. Another week we looked at um, freedom from approval, seeking approval of other people. Then, I think it was last week, we looked at freedom from being dragged back into your past and going back into your old behavior when times get tough. And this week, we're looking at freedom to be me. What the gospel tells us about the freedom it gives me to be who I have been called to be by God. And so if you've got your Bibles with you on your phone or your tablet, we're going to read Galatians 3, verses 26 to 29. The first part of chapter 3, as I said, he starts with you foolish Galatians, and he goes on to explain to them, why the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say this in verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither, neither slave or free. 
There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul continues stressing there that actually if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are part of God's family. The gospel message tells you that you have been brought into the family. You are joint heirs with Christ. You are already part of the family. And then if you could slip on from to the next slide. In verse 28, he sort of generally talks to them as a group. And he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Now we know from historical records, we know from other parts of the Bible that read, that all the people that Paul lists there were actually in the Galatian church. There were Jewish people, there were Greeks, there were people that were slaves, there were people that were free, and there were men and there were women. And so we have to look at what is it that Paul's trying to do here. Well, first of all, we can see that he's contrasting one group with another. So if we start with the Jews and the Greeks, it, um, in other translations it says Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentiles would have been some of the Greek people. And the Jews and Greeks by the first century were living side by side all over the Roman Roman Empire. They'd been displaced, and so they were living all across side by side. And there had been tensions between those groups. There'd been civil unrest in cities right across what's now Turkey, some, some violent clashes between those particular groups. Now, while there's no record of those conflicts taking place when this was written, it would, those conflicts were within living memory of some of the people that Paul is writing to. So first off, we can see he's contrasting groups that don't necessarily get on. But actually, I think it's far deeper than that. And there's something a bit more um, involved in what he's saying by comparing those groups. If you could flip on for me. First of all, we have the Jews, the Greeks, slaves, free, male and female. Now, I think what Paul is doing is he's talking about different groups, but he's also speaking about the characteristics that those groups would have represented within their community. Let me show you what I mean. The Jews, well, as a group, the Jewish people who were Jewish and Christians in that fellowship, they were the ones with all the history. They would have very much been seen as the people that had got it all together. They would be the people that had been following this God of Abraham for years. They would have followed him, their fathers and their fathers and their fathers before them. And so it would be very easy for them to be seen as the people that actually knew more about this God and understood this God. In fact, that's probably what led to some people following them off into going back to believing about the law and what they needed to do. They would have been the group that represented the ones that had it all sorted out and had the history. What about the Greeks? Well... The Greeks, they had a long legacy of language, art, philosophy, politics, and culture. And the Greeks, just like the Jews would refer to themselves as the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and everybody else, the Greeks used to refer to themselves as the Greeks and everybody else. But they would use the term Greeks and barbarians. Can you see a mindset that we get just from that sentence? There's us with all this culture and philosophy and politics and history. And then there's all you other people. Barbarians, not cultured. And so they would certainly want to see themselves and would have been seen in society as the people with knowledge, with logic and with wisdom. We move down. Who's next? The slaves. Well, slaves is a really hard concept for us to understand, isn't it? As someone coming to our fellowship who was a slave. We would have a real issue with that. But uh, Neil spoke about that a few weeks ago. 
about how we find it difficult, but actually it was part of the culture and it was part of society. And so it's very possible and probable that there would be people within the fellowship who were slaves. Now, as a slave, you're often sort of treated as a household servant, some, and some were treated really well. Others would have worked in mines or um, those type of places that may not have been treated as well. But as a slave, what you could do, you had the right under law to save up what would be a lot of money to you over a long period of time, and potentially you could buy your freedom. So you could get your rights back and no longer be owned by somebody else. But it took a huge amount of money compared to what you earned, which would take a long time. Imagine how you'd feel. You have to save every penny you've got all your life just to gain the rights of someone else in the church that they have. Just normal rights. And if you couldn't afford to do that, you were left kind of powerless and really under other people's control. And so if we had slaves, we also had free people. Some of those free people may well have had slaves themselves um, and been the masters of those slaves. If in that time, having slaves was a sign of wealth, a sign of success and power. So alongside the slaves, you may well have had free people or people that were masters who were seen as wealthy and successful. And then male and female. I'm certainly not going to the struggle of equality in depth because it's, everyone's got their own views. But certainly in that society, more so than now, the males would have had the power and the influence in society, in culture, and in the home. They were ones who set the laws, set how society worked which on the flip side meant that the females had limited opportunities and were restricted in what they were allowed or could be expected to do. And so when Paul mentions all those groups, behind all those groups are these sort of characteristics um, and traits and the way that they would have been viewed by others. And so you're left feeling, where am I in that list? If you were in that church you would be left in no doubt as to which group that you were part of. You would be left in no doubt as to where you fitted in. You would look round and compare yourself either in physical appearance, in status, in wealth, and you would know very much which group you were, where you fitted in, and what was expected of you. It would lead to people's expectations and assumptions of what you could do, where you could go, who you could go with, and what your limitation was. And so Paul, when he makes that statement, is actually saying to them, this that you have is your accepted culture, accepted society. Actually, those ways of judging who's the most important, who has priority, as far as God is concerned, are irrelevant. God looks at each and every one of you and sees you as equal, sees you all as his children and part of his family. For the Galatian church, that would have been something to get your head around because their whole life, their whole society reflected this sort of way and this sort of structure. And so it was kind of hard for them to accept or would be hard for some of them to accept that actually everybody is equal here. Whether you're a master, whether you're a slave, whether you're wealthy, whether you're intelligent, we're all equally loved by God. We're all equally valued. We're all equally accepted in his kingdom. And so that's what it meant to the Galatian church, what Paul had written. We have to ask ourselves, how does that actually apply to us now? Obviously, we don't have, we wouldn't look around and classify ourselves as slaves or as free. We wouldn't necessarily have those titles. If you could move me on. 
we still have the same characteristics in all of culture and all of society. When we look around and compare ourselves to others, we can still see those people that seem to have it all sorted out. I might not, but there's some people, they just seem to have it sorted out. Work, relationships, God, anything. They just seem to have, it's all in place for them. They've got it all sorted. We can all see people that are cleverer than us, that somehow have more knowledge that we, and more understanding of the things of God or of how life works that we could ever seem to hope to gain. In society, maybe even in church, there's people who feel powerless, who feel trapped in the circumstances and the situations that they face, that no matter where they turn or what they do, they get one part sorted and somehow something else falls apart. There's always going to be people that are successful, wealthy, people that have power and influence over us or over the people, and plenty of people that feel that their opportunities in life are limited, either because of where they're born, how they were brought up, what results they got at college, what their finances are, limited opportunities. So although we might not use the same titles, those same characteristics, those same traits, we still see in society and even in our own fellowship, even in churches up and down the country. We see the same types of people and we still do what the Galatians would have done. We still look, don't we, around at other people and try and work out where am I at that, on that list? How am I doing? Where do I fit in? What's my place? And we try and weigh up all, all the, the, the I, I, I'm okay at this, but the, gosh, look, look, look at what they're doing. Look how good they are at that. Look how much they've got together. We still want to compare ourselves with other people to find out how we're doing. And people that study the mind and study um, how we all interact with one another tell us that actually that comparison that need to compare is a really strong urge in each and every one of us as human beings. We always want to compare ourselves with others to find out how we're doing, to see if we're okay, to see where we fit into the group around us. We see it all the time in our culture, we see that need to compare. Let me give you an example, if you could pop me onto the next slide. Celebrity endorsements. Why do advertisers use celebrity endorsements? Why do they show us successful, talented, beautiful, wealthy people that just happen to use their product? Because they know that when we see those people, something inside us compares ourselves to them. Have you seen the, um, the You're Worth It L'Oreal adverts? They'll find someone with incredibly bouncy, long, fluffy hair that's been photoshopped with an inch of its life and they tell you that they just put a bit of head and shoulders on and that's what it's like. The idea is that you compare your hair to theirs and you come up short. And so what do you do to be more like them? It's a powerful urge that we all face. There is another company that I'll talk about that I think are brilliant at this sort of marketing. It's a company called, um, called Harley-Davidson Motorcycles. Now, as some of you know, I have a bit of a history. And what I'm about to say in no way applies to me, but it could apply to some people who buy their products. Honest. <laughs> Harley-Davidson, if, you, if, if you're in, in riding motorbikes, there's two jokes that I've always said about Harley-Davidson motorbikes. One is they are much better at marketing than they are at making motorbikes. And two, if you buy a Harley-Davidson, you must be having a midlife crisis. Those are the two things. And they're probably, it's probably fair to level the midlife crisis one because Harley-Davidson traditionally have marketed 
middle-aged men. That's been their target market for a long time. And what they do is they look at middle-aged men who have responsibilities and a mortgage and a wife and kids and a boss who's always on the back and is really busy and really, you know, just wants a bit of freedom. And they show them images like this. Experience a new wave of freedom. The freedom promise from Harley-Davidson. They show those guys, some bloke on his bike riding across America, not a care in the world, just him and his buddies, free to ride around on their motorbikes, having a great time and having great fun. At no point do they tell you how fast it goes or how powerful it is, all the things that other manufacturers would tell you. They don't tell you how expensive it is. They certainly don't tell you that because they don't want you to compare your motorbike with that motorbike. They want you to compare your life with that guy's life. And that guy's got freedom. That guy's free of pressure. And some people, crazy as it might sound, still buy a Harley Davidson. And this, to me, just sums up where the lie that's there. If you put the next one on for me. These guys who have got need, need to escape responsibilities. You've jumped on two there, pal. Just bob back for me, if you can. <laughs> or just read the sermon for yourself. And it's, you know, can you go backwards if you press the up button? And then press the down there. Finance your freedom. If you want to escape your financial pressures and all the things on your life... Take out a loan with us and you'll experience more freedom. It shows you the absolute lie. But it's a lie that we participate in by our willingness and our need to compare my life with somebody else's. To take it back to church and quickly away from Harley Davidson, I was at a church this week um, on Thursday talking to a minister there and he didn't know what I was speaking on, but he was talking about some uh, research that he was working his way through um, I don't know if it was by the Church of England or the Church of England had commissioned it. And it was looking at helping ministers engage with congregations and understand what makes people tick, understand how we work as people so that they can better inspire people. And he said one of the um, pieces of research that, that he had read, which really scared him and, and shocked him, really, he said it, it was talking about our need to fit in. He said that the, uh, this group, whoever it is, who's done this research have identified that a common trait, not always, but fairly commonly, a church that has a PCC, which is a group of people that meet together to run, run the church and the buildings and things, we wouldn't call them a PCC, but every church has the same sort of group. Very often or commonly in that group, there will be someone who's quite obstructive to change. Shocking, I know. But quite obstructive and resistant to anything the minister sets. And there's always a person that brings up objections and creates problems. And this research was saying that often when that person leaves that group, so either retires, dies, decides they don't want to be part of that group, whatever, the minister may take a moment of a sigh of relief that this awkward person has now left the group. Only to find that at the very next meeting, someone else has decided to assume that role. Someone that's never been a problem before in the past, never been combative, all of a sudden decides that they're the person that needs to speak up and raise the objections. What happens there? It's our chance that our mind is permanently looking and assessing where we are with everybody else. How do I fit in? What's my role? And some, for some reason people decide that that's the role that they want to fulfill. There was a, a clinical uh, psychiatrist 
said this quote talking about our comparisons that we have. So if you need to compare yourself, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who somebody else is today. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not who someone else is today. Because when we compare ourselves to other people, we run into issues. When we compare ourselves to other people, there's only one of two answers that we can come back with. If I decide, and as you sat right in front of me, Cameron, I'm going to compare myself to Cameron. Here we are in church. We know all those lists of things that we talked about before. So I'm going to compare myself to Cameron. Actually, first off, if I compare myself to you, Cameron, I could say, yeah, I'm better than you. I've got it more sorted than you. I've got it more together. A bit more experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm better than Cameron. And it might make me feel warm and fuzzy for a couple of minutes. But actually, in the long term, it's going to damage both me and Cameron. Because if I think I'm better than you, it's going to alter the way that I treat you. If I think I'm better than you, the desire is to make you more like me. Make you agree with me. Because why? That continues to make me feel that I'm right. When we compare ourselves and think we're better as disciples of Jesus, it makes it difficult because it's hard to live as a servant to someone when you think that you're better than them. It's hard to live day to day looking at how we can serve each other if we think that I'm better than you. And actually worse than all of those, it limits my expectations of you. It limits what I think you can achieve. I start to place limitations of what, on what you can do and what I think you're able to achieve because I'm better than you. On the flip side of that, I might compare myself with you, Cameron, and realise I'm not as good. You're great. I'm rubbish. I'm a failure. This is more commonly what happens when we compare ourselves. We think that I, I end up thinking that I'm a failure. And what does that drive me to do? Well, actually, I'm going to try and make myself a bit more like you. Don't want to be me anymore. I want to be like you. And I wonder, up and down the land, in how many churches, how many people are trying to live how they think that everybody else wants them to live. They're trying to be something out of a sense of failure so that they're acceptable to the body of Christ. They're trying to play a different role than who they really are because I failed and I need to be more like those around me. And if that continues for too long, I end up resenting you. Paul is describing a new way, a new order to the Galatian church, a way where all these things, this need to compare ourselves becomes irrelevant. This need to compare ourselves is not what God wants us to do because when we look at each other, we have to accept that you and I, in God's eyes, are simply his children. God sees you and me just the same, just as valuable, just as loved, just as cared for. I can be free to be who I'm called to be because God doesn't compare me to anybody else. God looks and sees me. God doesn't look at Ian and say, Ian's great, but if he was a bit more like Morag, he'd be really good. God doesn't say that. Morag might say that, but God doesn't say that. And then he just say, oh, Morag, Morag, well, she, she's brilliant, but if Morag was as successful as Jay, well, then, then she'd be really good. And if Jay, well, if... If Jay was as clever as Andrew, wow, how good would that be? That's not what God does. 
God doesn't look at you and compare you to someone else. He looks at you and says, I love you for who you are. I don't want you to be anybody else. I want you to be who I have called you to be. You're equally loved as a child of God. You're equally an heir to the promises of God as a child of God. Regardless of history, ethnic origin, background, circumstances, situations, intelligence, social standing, health or wealth, none of that makes any difference as to how God views you as his child that he loves. If I can understand what Paul was trying to say to the Galatian church, and to paraphrase, it's simply, Paul wanted the Galatian church and Paul wants us to see ourselves as God sees us. And more than that, he wants us to see each other as God sees us. Because only when we get our heads around that do we really have true freedom to be who God has called us to be. If I can understand that, then I am free from your assumptions and expectations of me. I'm free from not feeling good enough and I'm free from trying to be somebody else, trying to be like you, trying to copy someone. I'm free to be who he's made me. No longer do I actually need to look around to compare me with you to try and find my place. The Bible says I've already found my place and it's as part of his family as his child who he loves. I'm going to ask the music guys if they can come up. But as, we, as they start playing, I just want to ask you to take a moment and think, how have you viewed yourself? What behaviours do you display that come from the way that you viewed yourself or viewed other people? Have you stopped yourself from doing something, from stepping out because you don't think that you're as good as her? Someone else can do that because they're so much better at it than you. Take a moment and ask yourself, how do I view myself? Do I see myself? Do I see those around me as God sees me? And I want to pray and ask God that this week as we live our lives, we'll do it with a fresh understanding, free to be who God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you created us as your children, Father. We thank you that you designed us, Father. You designed plans and purposes even before we were born, you had a plan and purpose for what we would do. Father, I thank you for the plans that you have given each and every one of us, the roles that you have given us to play, we're fully capable of doing them in your strength. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us, you would forgive us for the times when we label ourselves failures because we don't compare well to the people around us. Forgive us, Lord, for the limitations that we've placed on one another because somehow we feel that other people just don't match up to what we think they should be. Father, help us to see ourselves and each other as you see us, as children loved by God, equally loved, equally accepted, and equally cared for. And Father, as we go out this week, we pray that we will continue to grow into the people that you want us to be. Not our own preconceived ideas, not other people's expectations or limitations, but we will grow to be the people that you created us to be, that you designed us to be, that we would, nothing would hold us back from fulfilling the plans and purposes that you have for each and every one of us. Father, thank you that we're all free to be who, have you, who you've called us to be, that you don't compare us with anyone else. Amen.